We are back in Mark chapter 5 today. And I'm going to go ahead and just read our entire passage this morning before uh, making any commentary on the text. We're going to be picking things up in Mark chapter 5 and verse 21. Reading down through the end of the chapter. And when Jesus had crossed again into the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. And she heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment." For she said, if I, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he followed, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion people weeping and wailing loudly. When he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. I don't know what is the, uh, what the most desperate you've ever been in your life. Just from my own observations, it, it seems to me that, the, that desperation is born out of the possibility or the reality of loss. 
I've noticed that in my interactions with individuals who live in what might seem like poverty or even extreme poverty, there's not a lot of urgentness or desperation in their lives until they're faced with the potential of losing something they care about. I once met a homeless man who had a small dog that went with him everywhere that he went, and he didn't really seem to care much about the living circumstances in which he found himself. He, on the street, he seemed to be fine with all of that. He didn't really care about the food that he ate or things. He was content just to kind of get by with, with where he was until he was faced with the potential reality that his dog could be taken from him if he were to go to prison for some violations that he had committed. Suddenly, this man was very desperate to do whatever he could to avoid that time in prison. Those who stand something to lose are the ones who are the most desperate. Those on the brink of eviction present a a desperation and urgency that might have been lacking even just months before leading up to that moment. Why? This is the trajectory. Why is there that desperation in that moment? Well, even if things were bad before, this is the moment where my home could be taken away, and that creates the urgency and the desperation. Those who receive a terminal illness diagnosis, they're they're desperate to try whatever experimental drug might be available in hopes that, that maybe something might work, lest they stand to lose their lives. It's the possibility or the reality of loss that often drives desperation. In our text today, we find Jesus encountering two individuals who are desperate individuals. They are at the end of their ropes. They have nowhere else to turn, no one else that can help him. They've tried all that there is to try, and all that is left is to seek out this Jesus man that they've been hearing about. Maybe, just maybe, he can help me in my hopeless situation. And the rumors were astounding. Some say he's the Christ. Others say he's a prophet. And then there are others who just say, no, he's nothing more than a fraud. But if nothing else, he just might be the last hope that these individuals have. And I read one commentator this week who said that chapter 5 might be called the St. Jude chapter. And he said that somewhat facetiously. St. Jude is considered the saint of hopeless causes. Well, we have seen individuals already in this, in this chapter in a hopeless state. Last week we saw this uncontrollable demoniac who had a legion of demons within him. Here we find a 12-year-old on the brink of death and a woman who's had a bleed that has been going on for as long as that little girl has been alive. Well, last week we saw how Jesus dealt with the demoniac in an incredible display of power. He drives out the demonic horde, casts them into the swine that drown in the depths of the sea. He restores the man and he sends him to tell others the good news in his community. Well, what will we find in our text today? Here we find Jesus meeting people in their deepest needs. Jesus meets people in their deepest needs when they come to him in faith. 
This narrative is, is arranged in a particular way using one of Mark's favorite literary devices. We've already seen this within this book already. We're going to see it here, and we're going to see it more as we go on through this book. He, he loves this literary device, something called intercalation. Intercalation is usually identifiable with that ABA pattern. He begins a story or a theme, and then there's something that might seem to interrupt the story or the theme, some other scene that goes on, and then he returns back to the original story or theme and continues and completes the idea or the thought or the theme or the story. There's a resumption, there's a resolution at the end. And that is the structure that we find here in this text. The story begins with Jairus coming to Jesus and Jesus agreeing to go with him to help his daughter, but that is interrupted by the case of the woman with the flow of blood. But then it is resumed again when things get a little more desperate when it is reported to Jairus that his daughter has died. Well, the purpose of this literary practice at it's usually to highlight some information that is in the center of things, to highlight the most important thing to view. Sometimes this device is used simply to see us draw out some comparisons and contrasts between the stories and the realities here. By way of comparison, when we consider this woman with the flow of blood and then the story of Jairus and his daughter at bracketing this story, both stories see Jesus working a miracle with a a female character. Both contain the number 12. The daughter is 12 years old. The woman has had this flow of blood for 12 years. And both involve Jesus encountering what would be considered unclean. This woman would have been ritually unclean, ceremonially unclean, and the dead girl would have been unclean because she died. She is a corpse at that point. So there's points of comparison. There's also points of contrast. The two individuals who are asking Jesus for help could not be at more opposite ends of the social picture, the social spectrum. On one hand, you have Jairus who's considered one of the rulers of the synagogue. He is a man who carries authority. He is socially well-connected. The synagogue rulers, they had responsibility to tend to the synagogue, right? They're they're responsible for that. He he has to uh, procure scripture scrolls for the reading. He's the one who invites the rabbis and sets up their times of speaking and teaching on the things of the law. They were influential and well-respected leaders in the community. Then we have the opposite end of the spectrum. Here we have this woman who is unclean. Because of the 12-year bleeding, she would have been a social outcast. Her bleed renders her ceremonially unclean and unable to participate as a normal member of society. Everything that she touches according to the law, everything that she touches, every seat that she sits in is considered unclean and has to be purified before anyone else is to use those things. What binds these stories together? What is the the common link between them? Well, both these individuals come seeking Jesus. Both these individuals come at their most desperate moment, in their deepest need, and both express some level of faith in the one who is able. 
three principles that I want us to glean from this text as we consider these things in a little more detail. The first is that in your deepest need, you can go to Jesus. This is what we see with Jairus in verses 22 and 23. There came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly. That word for imploring, it speaks of a begging, it's just an absolute begging of the Lord. This is the same word that we see back earlier in the same chapter of the, of the demons, begging Jesus not to cast them out, but to send them into the swine, or the people begging Jesus to leave the region. There's an earnestness to this request and this plea. Jairus, he comes to Jesus. And this, this would have taken great courage for Jairus. Jairus, it's already clear from our text as we've been moving through this book of Mark that the, the religious leaders as a whole, they do not appreciate Jesus or the things that he is doing or the things that he is teaching. Jesus is not held up as one to be respected and revered within the religious elite of the day. They do not view him as the Messiah, but rather as a threat to their authority. So we saw back in chapters 2 and 3, we saw escalating encounters between Jesus and the religious leaders and how these religious leaders are already plotting to kill Jesus. So for Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, to go to Jesus, to fall at the feet of Jesus, and that's, that's the same posture that the demon-possessed man came as he fell before Jesus, that same posture. And then to beg Jesus for help, this would have taken great humility and great courage for him. It took courage for him to be willing to risk his position What would the other religious leaders do if they saw him in this moment? To courage to be willing to, be, to publicly admit his need. That a man as well-connected and as well-respected and highly regarded as this man, as a ruler of the synagogue, would come and fall at the feet of a man some call the Christ in a public setting such as that. It took humility to come and bow himself before the man that his colleagues desired to kill. This man is desperate. This man is desperate. His daughter is sick, and, and what father wouldn't be willing to do whatever he could to help his daughter? Because the reality is that she's not just sick, but is at the point of death, is what the text says. My, my little daughter is at the point of death. She's at death's door. In any moment, she could breathe her last. Jesus agrees to go with him, and the crowd follows along to see what Jesus might do, but there is an interruption in the schedule. For Jairus is not the only one there who is desperate, and Jairus is not the only one with a great need. In comes this woman. Her name is unknown. We do not know who this woman was, but her condition was well known. 
Her condition was very well known. The text says she had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And this almost certainly refers to uterine bleeding. She has been to doctor after doctor. Spent every penny that she had. All of it was for nothing. Not a single doctor helped her. Not only did they not help, but verse 26 says that she only got worse there's like, there's like this building, this escalation of, of terms when we come into verse 26 where it says that she had suffered much under many physicians. Like she goes to them for help, but she ends up suffering as a result. She had spent all that she had and she was no better, but rather grew worse. But she hears about Jesus and she says, I need to go to this man. She hears about this man who works miracles. She, she heard that this may be the it Messiah that Israel has waited so long for. And so she goes out, she sets out to get near to him, and she sets out to touch him. And verse 28 provides her reasoning. Why is she trying to touch Jesus? If I could just, but just touch his garments, I know that that's all it takes, that's all I need to do. If I could but touch him. I'll be made well. I'll be cleansed. Everything will be well. That would be enough. We have to understand how risky this would have been for her as well. She, an unclean woman, moving through the crowd to get to Jesus. What if she is recognized? What if somebody realizes, hey, I know you. You're the one that has this embarrassing issue for 12 years. No doctor has been able to help you. When Jesus asks, who touches my garment? The disciples are almost indignant at the questions. Jesus, uh, who hasn't touched you today, right? We're all in this crowd. We're all bustling together. Everyone's pressing around you. We've, everybody's touched you. But think about the implications of that. They're in a crowd. They're tightly together. There's this woman who is ritually unclean, jostling about amongst the crowd, weaving her way to get to Jesus. It's not as if there's like an open pathway that she just walks through and just comes right up and grabs a hold of Jesus. Oh, they're jostling along. They're bumping into each other. And this woman is doing what what many would have considered to be reckless and irresponsible. My mind goes back to the early days of, of 2020 when we, were not, we didn't know what we were dealing with, with COVID and everything. And there's all this all social distancing, you know, we got to keep back at six feet and all these things and all this kind of talk and such. Well, imagine transporting ourselves back in time when there was still so much of this public fear about this new disease that was going and spreading around. An individual is known to contract COVID, but they hear about a cure, but in order to get there, they have to get through a crowd of healthy people to get it. It's irresponsible. What are you doing? You're putting everyone in danger for the sake of yourself. What if the cure doesn't work? You've just put the entire community at risk. And now we're all unclean. 
So this is a risky move for this woman, but in her deepest need, she risks everything to get to Jesus Christ. In our deepest need, we can go to Jesus. You know, in our culture today, coming to Jesus is not, it's not really considered socially risky for the majority of us. Now, there's a few pockets where that would be considered risky. <clears throat> I think of uh, in our area, even if there were some Branhamites that were to leave the Branhamite church, they would be outcast from their family. That would actually be very risky for them to do that. I think of individuals uh, growing up as Mormons, living in LDS church. That would, that would be risky to leave their church there. Or perhaps a predominantly Muslim area. That would be risky for them. Right? Especially in, in other countries where it's not just risky, you might be outcast from your family, but it's risky, you might die. Like you, you could lose your life over this decision. For, but for most of us in this region, that's, the risks are really pretty minimal for us. There, there are some pockets of the world, in some eras of history, it has been more risky. For us, it is not quite as risky. It's true, there are some risks. You may lose a friend. You may be ridiculed by people who mock religion, but it's relatively minor in the grand scheme of things. And yet, it still takes humility and it still takes courage to risk all to come to Jesus. It takes humility to admit that you are helpless on your own and you need the hand of another to help you. It takes courage to publicly declare that need in such a way that everyone else sees. We think of the public confession of faith that baptism represents, saying, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. I'm identifying with my Lord through this act of water baptism, being identifying with him in the likeness of his death and raised again in the likeness of his resurrection. There's an identification with Christ in a public way. That can be risky for some. It can take courage. It can take humility. But in our deepest need, Jesus is where we must turn. We must turn to Jesus who is strong and kind as we sang earlier. Not only must we go to Jesus, but we must have faith in Him as well. In our deepest need, we can go to Jesus. In our deepest need, we must have faith in Jesus. In some ways, this might seem like a redundant point to the last. Well, if I'm going to Jesus, that would imply I have faith in Him already, right? It's like I'm going to Him for a reason, and there's truth to that. But the issue of faith is so central to the thrust of this passage that it's worth signaling out, singling it out and identifying it as a standalone point. And that is going to become especially true when we consider the passage that is next week when Jesus is going to be amongst his hometown and the text says that he could do not many miracles there because they lacked faith. Faith is a central point of this section of Scripture. 
This woman, she, she comes to Jesus and she touches him because she believes that if she just touches his clothes, that would be enough, and, and it is. And she, she touches him. She reaches out, she grabs a hold of his garments, and she can feel immediately that she has been healed. Just like that. Well, gee, she's not the only one who felt something. The text says that Jesus also was aware of this. He says he felt power go out from him. And so he pauses and he says, who touched me? And I think it's important for us to recognize this isn't because Jesus didn't know who touched him, right? Jesus is almighty God in human flesh. He is demonstrated at various points within this book already that he is aware of the thoughts and the intentions of individuals' hearts. And yet he asks here, who touched me? Not because he didn't know but he asks to draw out the woman so that she may stand before him. And so this woman comes and she bows himself before him and she confesses, it was me, I'm the one who touched me. And I love how the text says, and he, she told him the whole truth. Imagine she told him the whole story about everything that had gone on, why she was in this moment. And she had concluded, if I could just but touch you, I would be healed. The text also says she was afraid. She was trembling. Why? I mean, she had just been healed. Why, why would she be afraid in that moment? Was she just, just stage fright, afraid to stand in front of people? I think it's because she, an unclean woman, managed to get close enough to Jesus to touch him, but she was unclean and everybody knew that. Anyone and anything she touches becomes unclean as well. And here she's been rubbing up against everyone in the crowd for Jesus to single her out and to draw her out from the crowd. Everyone would see her and recognize, hey, this is that woman. As one commentator put it, she's a walking pollution to the society here. So why did Jesus draw her out? I really love, there's another commentator who put things this way, and I'm just going to quote what he says because he just put it so well. What she has done needs to be exposed to the crowd, not because it was wrong, but because it was right. The crowd has not become unclean by her touch. She has become clean by touching Jesus. The crowd needs to know that. This woman's humiliation has been public knowledge. Her healing must be public knowledge as well. He's healed her. This, this woman who everyone knew was, was the unclean woman because of her physical issue, and now she's been cleansed, and everyone needed to know that that was true. Notice what Jesus says to her. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. He calls her daughter a tender term of affection for her, and he refers to her faith. Right? That's the central issue right there. She had faith that Jesus was able to do what no doctor had been able to do up to that point. 
faith that he was able to restore her, not just physically, but socially and perhaps even spiritually as well. The word that is used of Jesus when he says, your faith has made you well, that word for made you well is the Greek word sozo, which is most often translated to save. Now this word is context dependent, so we don't want to backload theology of a word into the usage in a given text. We want to understand it within its context. That word can refer to a physical deliverance. It can refer to spiritual salvation. It can be used in different contexts in different ways. So we must let the context help us. But there are other words that Mark has used within his book already to refer to mere physical healing, and this is not that word. Here, he uses the terminology of salvation for this woman. She has been saved. She has been restored. She has been delivered from this affliction. And when Jesus tells her to go in peace, that is not just merely a, all right, goodbye, we'll see you later. It is a blessing upon her. Literally, we could translate it as go into peace. She can leave and enter into the peace of her Lord. This is a blessing that she might go forth restored, not just physically and socially, but in a right relationship with her God as well. So it seems, even from the context, that she didn't just have faith that Jesus could heal, but she also had faith that Jesus was that long-awaited Messiah. So Jesus responds to her great faith. Now, this is an amazing miracle, and it's incredible what has happened here, but we really don't get to soak in the amazingness of it for very long, because right away, we're right back to Jairus. The text quickly bounces back to him in what seems to be the more pressing need, because while Jesus is interacting with this woman, right in the midst of that, the text says, while he was still speaking in verse 35, these individuals come. And say, leave the teacher alone. Your daughter has died. There's no more hope. It's over. While she was still sick, there was hope because Jesus was healing the sick. Everybody could see that. But now she's dead. So all hope is lost. Jesus hears this and he says to them in verse 36, no, no, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. Jesus instructs Jairus, you, you have faith. You came to me for a reason. You believe that I have power to do something in your little girl's life. Don't fear, but believe what you came to me for. Believe, trust in me. As we come to Jesus, we must have faith that he is who he claims to be and he can do what he claims he can do. And faith is the conduit through which Jesus addresses our needs. Sometimes this is hard for us to wrestle with because we, we can struggle with periods of doubt within our lives and wondering if the Lord cares for us and things of that nature. 
Sometimes we have to cry out as, as one individual did, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I'm, I'm struggling. I want to believe, but it's hard. And sometimes Jesus acts to bolster and strengthen our faith. But we must not come to him as a skeptic. Even if we have doubts, there's a difference between demanding a sign as a skeptic might and seeking the strengthening of our faith. In your deepest need, you must have faith in Jesus Christ. Because here's the reality, and this is something that we can count on. In your deepest need, Jesus cares for you. He cares. We, we have seen the tender care for the woman with the bleeding. He says, daughter. He, he speaks to her in such a tender and affectionate way. My daughter, go in peace. Publicly recognize her so that, so that she, he can remove the social stigma that would have been associated with her disease. Jesus cares for this woman. He cares, yes, for her physical well-being, but also her social well-being and her spiritual well-being. He cares for her in the whole person. Now we get to see his care for Jairus' daughter as well. He tells Jairus, don't fear, only believe. And so he goes and they, they travel to the house. And there's all these people. They're weeping and they're mourning. And he challenges them. He says, all right, uh, stop making all this ruckus. Why are you making such a commotion? It's just noise. Just as an interesting, interesting piece of history that individuals, when they had a family member die within the family, it was very common in those days to hire professional mourners to come and weep and wail at the death of their loved one. The louder the wailing, the more, the more elaborate the mourning, the more respect this family. Wow, this, this individual must have been so loved by their community. Look at all these wailers in their mourning. So they would hire these individuals to put on a great show for the sake of the social credit for the person who died. Jesus, it's just commotion to him. Right? He's, he, I love how it says that, that commotion. Jesus saw a commotion. All these people weeping and wailing loudly. He says, why are you making a commotion? And he challenges them on their point of faith. The child is not dead, but sleeping. The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they, they laugh at him, right? He says, they, they mock Jesus for this. They laugh. He's like, what are you talking about? Clearly, she's dead. I mean, this is why we're here. Like, this is why we're hired. She's dead. Jesus puts them outside. He says, all right, enough of you. I'm taking mom and dad, and we're going upstairs. So they go in. Again, we find the, how Jesus approaches this young girl. He, he approaches her with such tenderness. In verse 41, it says that he took her by the hand, and he said to her, Talitha, kumi which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. The tenderness of our Lord towards this little girl, the same tenderness that he had towards the woman as he called her daughter. And she arises. 
restored to life. He heals her. He brings her back from the dead. This is, this is the most astounding miracle to date within the book. All right, casting out demons, healing these individuals, that's all amazing. This person was dead, and now she lives. So the text says, she's, okay, she gets up, she walks around. Okay, she's 12 years old. Mark is letting us know we're not talking about an infant here. You know, we're talking about a, a, young, a young lady. She's 12 years old, and she's walking around. And he says, immediately everyone was overcome with amazement. They're shocked. They're amazed at what Christ has done. But this time, Jesus instructs silence about this matter. Look at what he says. Don't tell anyone about this. He says in verse 43, he strictly charged them that no one should know about this. And he told them to give her something to eat. I believe this is another expression of Jesus' care for this young lady and her family. I mean, it would have been tempting to tell everyone what had happened. Like, oh, wow, there's this girl. She was dead. Now she's alive. But having that constant guests and people showing up to see this spectacle of of this girl who was dead and was alive, that probably would have been overwhelming for a 12-year-old girl. And so Jesus, in tenderness and sensitivity to that, says, "Don't, don't spread this around. Don't tell anyone about this. Give her something to eat, and that was to help everyone understand, like, oh, yeah, this, she really is alive. Like, she's not like a ghost or something like that here. Like, she's, she's alive. She's, flesh and blood is right here, and she can eat this physical food. It's not some kind of trick. So Jesus expresses care for this family, again, not just for the physical need of the moment, but for their ongoing just social interactions and existence within that community. As we think about this text, we're reminded about several things. Reminded of the need to have faith in Jesus Christ. That was the central issue within the center point of the story. She had faith and she was made well. Jesus instructs Jairus, do not fear, only believe. That's the central idea, the central point there. We're reminded of the need to have faith. We're reminded of the reality that Jesus does truly care for us. Jesus cares about our needs. Jesus here worked this miracle to demonstrate that care, and for some of us that might spark the question, okay, Jesus cared for them in that way. Does that mean I should expect some kind of miracle and miraculous healing within my own life about whatever issue I'm facing in my life? Well, can and does God still do miracles today? What's the answer to that? Yes, absolutely. God does still do miracles today. Now, we are a, what is called a cessationist church. We believe the miraculous sign gifts have ceased, but we must not confuse that to mean that we believe that miraculous things have stopped altogether. God is still the same God. God is still the one who works miracles. God still does answer prayer, and He still is more than capable of doing whatever He wants within the world. What we must be careful of is to believe that God owes us a miracle. We must be careful to believe that God owes us a miracle. 
Because God is all-powerful, He is all-loving, and He is all-wise, and He owes us absolutely nothing. But because He is all-powerful, because He is all-loving, He does genuinely care for us. But because He is all-wise, when we pray and God says no, He doesn't do it because He hates us. He doesn't do it because he doesn't care about us and he's just ignoring us. He does so because he knows that saying yes would do more harm to us than good in ways that we may never understand. James talks about how when we we pray and we ask God for things and God says no, there's reasons for that. Sometimes it's because we ask amiss that we may spend it on our own pleasures and God is protecting us from our own foolishness, our own flesh. Sometimes that is a reality. Well, if God does not work a miracle in our individual situations of whatever it is that we are experiencing, we must not take that to mean that God does not care because He has proven over and time and time again that He does care. But He often answers prayers in ways that we would never have expected. He is always leading, always teaching, always discipling us. He is always challenging us. Do not fear, only believe. We sang that song, How Firm a Foundation, earlier, and one of the verses of that, when through the fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume thy gold to refine. It shapes us, it refines us, it teaches us. But it is right for us to go to Him with our needs and to go in faith, believing that Jesus really does care. In these stories, the needs were physical. There was the, the issue of the woman with her bleeding, the daughter who had died, But the physical needs are not really our deepest needs, are they? Jesus has been clear about why he is on the earth. Though he delights to work miracles for the sake of others, the reason he has come is to proclaim the gospel because our deepest need is a spiritual need. So the most most important text in all of Mark is Mark 10.45 where it says that Jesus came not to be served but to serve. And, And we see that here, Jesus serving others, Jesus caring for others, Jesus loving others. That is a part so much of why he came. But that text also goes on to say he came not to be served but to serve and to what? Give his life a ransom for many. Why? It's because of our spiritual need. It's because we are sinners who justly deserve condemnation for our sin. We have violated God's commands and our only hope is through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the only one who is able to address that that deepest spiritual need. And he died on the cross to address that need and rose again from the dead so that anyone who would but believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins would have eternal life that is freely offered to anyone who would believe. So the question is, will we trust him? But even as believers, 
We still struggle with things, don't we? James says we all stumble in many ways. Our deepest need still remains spiritual. I I need to know Christ. I need to know Him more. I need to learn how to follow Him more closely. I need Him to teach me and continue to conform me into His image. I can try and I can try and I can try in my own strength and never make any progress in my spiritual life because I'm trying in my own strength. We must come to Christ. We must seek Him. And we must come to Him in faith. You trusted Him for your salvation. Will you trust Him for your sanctification as well? Will you go to Him with your temptations? Go to Him with your struggles and lay them out before Him. Lord, refine me in this area. Show me from Your Word how I can grow, how to follow You, how to be conformed. Work this within me. May your spirit transform my heart and my life. Will you trust him for your sanctification even as you trusted him for your salvation? And for the rest of our trials and our difficulties, our physical things that we run into in this life, Jesus absolutely cares for those things as well. He is not only interested in the spiritual and then ignoring the physical. No, he cares for all of that. And we can take our needs to Him as Peter says, cast your cares upon Him because He cares for you. He cares for you. He does. Trust Him that even if His answer is no when we ask Him to take things away, that that answer is no for your good and His glory. And so we need not fear, only belief. Father, I thank you so much for this passage. Thank you for the reminders contained therein. Thank you for the reminder that we can go to Jesus with our needs. We can bow before you and pour out our hearts before you. I think of so many of the Psalms that are just so raw in their emotion. David or the other psalmist pouring out their hearts before you in their darkest and deepest moments of need. And we can do the same. We can come before you. We can come to Jesus with our needs, knowing that He cares for us, that you care for us. Lord, you do not only care about our spiritual needs, Lord, you do care about us as our our whole person, our, our physical and our spiritual needs as well. But Lord, we also know that whatever it is that you have led into our lives, you have placed there for our own good, for our own sanctification. Even through the fiery trials, Lord, you are refining us and shaping us into the people that you want us to be. Lord, I thank you that we have a good and gracious and kind Savior. I thank you for Jesus Christ who is strong and kind, that we can go to him, trusting in him. Help us do this, Lord. Help us trust. Help us go knowing that you care. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.